Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations in Momentum, brought to you by the teams at Momentum Transport Consultancy and Momentum Transport Canada. I'm Katie Mokowski. And I'm Joe Tang. It's great to be back with you on this, Katie, for our latest episode. And for you, the listener at home, we've got a very exciting podcast in store today with lots of insightful opinions and views to cover. Absolutely, Joe. So today we're really lucky to be welcoming Momentum's Managing Director, Roy McGowan, to the podcast. Many of our listeners will know Roy. He has a career uh, in 40 years in transport um, and working on projects all over the world, including the Americas, the Middle East, Asia, and South Africa. Of course, the majority of his work has been in London and the UK. He's made a mark here with some really incredible experience, including the London 2012 bid and delivery, Victoria Nova and the Museum of London. Roy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're going to take this opportunity to talk to you um, about something really important, I think, as we mark a new year, uh, the power of long-term planning and policymaking. And hopefully we'll hear some examples of where you think this has worked and where it hasn't from um, your long and really impressive career in transport. Hi. Hi, Joe. Hi, Hi, Katie. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me back. It's my... uh second uh, second podcast uh, with Momentum and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the first conver- conversation we had. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much for joining us and I'm glad to hear that we didn't scare you away with the, with the first one. Uh, now, as you'll be well aware, we always start our podcasts by asking our guests to share a personal transport story with us. And if I remember correctly, the last time you delved into some really interesting details regarding your work on the London 2012 Olympics, talking about why it can be important to take a step back and to take a different perspective on things. And that will actually segue us nicely into our topic for later today. But before we delve into that, given your rich history working in the industry on so many interesting projects around the world, I was wondering if you might have another fun transport-related anecdote up your sleeve that you'd be happy to share with us. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of reach into my time of living and commuting in, in London. So uh, I, I, I started to live in London from mid-80s, 1985. So where are we? Almost, almost four years. And... Um, Due to my local bus services up Stoke Newington always being overloaded uh, with people in the morning and me finding myself getting to work late, um, I, I fairly quickly started to use cycling as a way of getting in and out. And my experience as a cyclist is unrecognisable today to 40 years ago. Um, the amount of soot in the air as a cyclist was just appalling. Um, the amount of soot that would go into your nose and lungs, the lack of space. I mean, it's not amazing now unless you're on a cycle superhighway or dedicated route, but the lack of space and um, attitude towards you as a cyclist was was pretty poor as well. And I know that's a long time to have achieved some changes, but I think back then it was something like somewhere between 1% to 2% of uh, commuters kind of giving it a go but there wasn't there wasn't much to uh, to encourage it um and for what that experience is now today is extraordinarily different and i know we've got a way to go but we're up in the region of kind of eight 
9%. And then this amazing moment last uh, autumn in the city of London, where for the first time in their sort of history of uh, recording transport in the city, there were more cyclists recorded coming into the city of London than cars uh, for the first time since those uh, since those records began. So you feel as though a really important pivot point um, was, was being reached at that moment. And then obviously there's way to go because, say, in comparison to a city such as Copenhagen that's been doing this for many, many more years than we have. You know, there were 50% uh, mode share now by by cycling for for work and we're we're just about touching 10 percent so we've got a great a great 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 challenge and uh, sort of journey ahead of us really exciting because the city is just going to become more livable more enjoyable um kind of more active travel with it, it it's you know su- such a brilliant direction for us to be going in so that's that's the one that I want to um, sort of pick out of of that period of time and say it's been amazing to see those changes coming through. That's great, Roy. Thank you so much. I think really inspiring, both in terms of the changes that you've seen happen in, in real time and also a comment on the, the way that we have to go. Um, I, I myself make a similar commute from Stoke Newington. And I think even in just the past month alone, we've seen some improvements around the, the Lee Bridge roundabout um, and, you know, coming at it both from a, a professional perspective, but also a personal perspective. I think those physical infrastructure and also um, environmental things like air quality improvements are the the exact thing that get people maybe um, out of cars and, and off buses and, and back into the streets. So um, really, really incredible to see, um, of course, from, I got a personal perspective, but uh, building off of that, my first question for you today also touches on your professional experience um, in the planning and in transport planning fields. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, Roy, if you could please tell us how your experience and, and time in the transport industry um, over many years, and I imagine also many administrations, um, has highlighted to you the importance of long-term planning and policy making uh, for sustainable and efficient transportation systems. Yeah, when I when I when I uh, first started that work um, in central London, I I, I uh, uh, worked in London for a decade before that, before I uh, then lived in London. There, there were huge differences of opinions across the different uh, local authorities about whether they wanted um, developments to maximise the amount of car parking space in a, in a, in a commercial development in particular, uh, whether residential had to be providing parking spaces before it could go ahead and some boroughs we're still we're still asking for that uh, up until quite recent years really and so we had this huge difference in approach across the 33 administrations um, and you can see that with those authorities that had a progressive view about the relationship between uh, transport and land use planning that understood you had very important links between where hospitals are located, where shopping's available, uh, where employment is provided and where leisure um, is uh, located. The, with that, and 
by reducing the car parking available and the management of it on the street, you had the opportunity to reduce the overall impacts from cars. And we're now at last, over that period of time, beginning to enjoy what's described, particularly in central London, as an ongoing decline now in the amount of car journeys that made that that's happening. Um, and that's happening as a result of some good alternatives. Uh, so good alternatives that people are trying with uh, micromobility, um, a very good public transport system. Um, and then the lack of opportunity to just park wherever you want to, the management of that has, you know, has encouraged people to look at the alternatives to it. So that, you know, that, that's taken a long time and there were people working on that before I started um, to work with within that area. So you might say that direction of policy, you know, has taken maybe 40 to 50 years um, and we there's loads more of it that we need to come through and in particular, and I'm sure we'll get on to some of the climate challenge uh, activities that we've got ahead for transport. Um, it kind of underlines how firm you need to be and clear you need to be with those policies if you're gonna if you're gonna change the trajectory of what you're doing. You need to be clear about it, uh, build up a good level of support and understanding of it, and then and then be consistent with the delivery of it um, as best you can. That's really interesting stuff, Roy, and and great to see some of those long-term changes finally bearing fruit and hopefully creating a decisive shift going forward. Um, and I guess, like you said, things like consistency is key with that, isn't it? Um, keeping on that subject of long-term policy and, and long-term planning there, um, it's obviously an element that's heavily shaped by politics, and we're obviously entering a big political year this year in the UK with a general election coming up. And, and I believe quite a number of democratic countries around the world have their general elections this year. So um, a big sort of political year on the horizon for us. And that often comes with a bit of a danger of a short term political considerations being prioritised. So I guess it's a, a bit of a roundabout way of me asking what your views on that are. And specifically, where you think short-term political considerations might have hindered the development of effective transportation policies in the past and where a shift to long-term planning could really have helped to address those challenges. Yeah, so really, I mean, that's a really, really important question and uh, completely in line with um, some of the changes we're seeing happening across the, uh, across the transport policy piece. Um, a real life example of it, I, I think everybody would reach to, is like how we've treated HS2 as a, as a project. Um, it's a huge project, it's undoubtedly very expensive and there's certainly questions to be asked about whether we procure these projects in the best of ways and in the most competitive of ways because from studies that others have taken um, it suggests that in France they're delivering they're delivering similar projects for about half the cost per kind of kilometer 
than, um, than, than, than we've been putting forward now, whether that's because we've got less open space and we've got to go underneath more things and we've got greater complexities across our geology and those elements of that. But it is the case that we're putting these projects forward at, at really, really high cost. We, we, we are developing like the most expensive versions of these schemes from, from across the world. So we need to look at that and we need to change it if we're going to achieve the improvements we need to be taking on the climate challenge elements of it. But it also has to be said that you're massively increasing those costs if you're changing your mind about what it is that you're doing, if you're if you're starting and investing and, and gearing up. I mean, just gearing up and starting these projects can, can be taking you a year to a, to, a, to, a, to a year and a half um, to get the right skills in place, to get the right training in place, to get the coordination of the design in place. And then to pause it at one end, one moment, and then to stop it at the other end um, as a long-term issue, um, and then to restart the southern end and start to gear that up. I mean, the additional costs from that are just huge. And I think the other difficulty with it is, is that those projects need to be funded with uh, international investment as well as government investment and investment from their own. And um, some of the financial reports I was reading of last year is, is that, you know, uh, the UK attracted 50% less overseas investment into infrastructure projects than we had previously done and there's an expectation that that might level out this year but there's a whole lot of wider thinking to be done about the impacts you can have uh, by by making by, by making these changes you know investors come to this country and in particular to London because there's a reliability about what they'll be investing in and what will be delivered um, in, in return for that and we need to be really, really careful not to damage that reputation because um, we will we, we will see some real key differences in what we can achieve with our infrastructure and longer term investment if we lose that if we lose that confidence uh, from from elsewhere in the world. So I think it's to be very, very carefully managed as a project, you know, HS2. Uh, has the potential to achieve great things. Um, you know, L- London's London's overheating. The housing difficulties in London are all. You know, everyone's fully aware of it. The opportunity to have um, travelling arrangements between the cities of Birmingham and Manchester that um, that, that reduce those travelling times, but in particular increase capacity to some extent. HS2 was always misnamed. It was a. It's a. It's a project that gets freight movements out of the way of um, passenger movements, meaning you can achieve better speeds and better reliability by not trying to get everything done on on twin tracks. So, um, it, yeah, it's hugely about capacity and being able to uh, accommodate more and more of the freight by not then slowing down passengers with it. So... 
that capacity challenge isn't going away. Um, you know, that's exactly it, that's exactly what we want to be able to achieve. Uh, the, the, the increase in freight, the increase in passengers, it's all part of the sustainable growth that we want to be achieving. But we're now going to be getting in the way of that by not having uh, the capacity for the passenger movements to get around to the delays of the uh, of the freight movements. So that's one example of where I think we've uh, really called that wrong um, in terms of suspending that project. Um, and perhaps even worse than that, it's a personal opinion, so not a momentum opinion, is I, I'm aghast at the idea that the land that was secured through planning processes around Manchester and for the delivery of the scheme to Manchester is now being reversed and just put back into the market so that it won't be possible for a future administration to deliver that scheme. I think that's, I think that's really wrong. Um, I don't think you should be frustrating future administrations from being able to promote uh, sustainable transport options uh, for the future. Yeah, th- thanks so much for that, Roy and Joe. I mean, there's there's so much, and and I think what both of you just raised and said, we've we've touched on international investment, both in, in infrastructure and um, in in broader sort of economic processes around climate action and transport. We've touched on capacity issues, um, and also the the challenge of term times. Um, and I think whether we're we're dealing with a kind of major infrastructural project like HS2 or whether we're talking about a major sort of um, existential and environmental problem like climate change, um, one of the biggest sort of, I guess, issues there is that we're really dealing with the question of scale and time um, and the fact that these are not things that can just fit conveniently within political term times or budgets. Um, both require, you know, massive cross-sector collaboration, um, interdisciplinary organization. And um, I think that's really where kind of the, the transport sector and expertise can have a, a really, you know, tremendous role, if I guess, given the, the power um, so, I mean, Roy, you, you mentioned it a bit there. And of course, it's a massive sort of political and also philosophical question. But there there is a really interesting argument for removing some of these long-term policy decisions, perhaps um, from the domain of, of politics alone and um, entrusting them either to, to experts in the field or at least to cross-party representation and, and scrutiny. Um, I'd, I'd be so interested to hear your thoughts and what the key advantages of that approach might be and um, how, given everything we've just talked about, um, it could possibly contribute to better outcomes um, for transport, for environment, and, and maybe for society as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I was looking at the um, National Infrastructure Commission um, that's um, independent organisation that's um, set up by the government. It reports through to the Treasury and uh, updates its kind of objectives and uh, proposals every every five years. And to some extent, that is meant to be the function um, of the longer-term planning. So um, I think... They provide excellent reports to say what the challenges are ahead. I'm just reading 
here, scale of investment needed, government projects a 60% increase in electricity demand by 2035. So, you know, just over a decade, we've got 60% more electricity to generate. And not just generate, but distribute, and then get through to the end user. And obviously, a large number of those end users are predicted to be the conversion of um, cars from fossil fuels through to through to electric. So that's a that's a massive challenge. We all know that we're miles behind with the kind of the development of that capability for electrifying vehicles, let alone cars, let alone electrifying the freight vehicles. And so we had the numbers. We understand the extent of the trouble uh, challenge. We realise how far behind it we are. To some extent, I think that's where the decision to extend the electrification of cars or the banning of fossil fuels from 2030 to 2035 came because it's so obvious that we can't get there by 2030. We're so so far behind on the provision of that electricity. So you're right, what we need now is the independent ability to deliver that and to build that out without getting frustrated by short-term politics and decisions and when I was when I was doing my transport studies many many years ago I had the the, um, the great pleasure of going on one of our study tours through to uh, the Netherlands and I was just really struck with how they had cross-party agreements for long-term strategies such as at that time, because this was in the, the late 80s, they they were just beginning to uh, promote and support the idea of double-decker trains. And they were saying this is how they were going to be able to deal with and accommodate um, the increased demand in the train services, something that the Dutch very, very much want uh, to be able to do as they, as they pivot away from the car use and, and further increase their uh, bicycle use and that was a 25 year plan so it's a 25 year plan it needs to be a 25 year probably longer even you've got every single bridge every single, every single road bridge over a railway track has got to be changed and increased in height because you've because of your double decker if you're electrifying it as well which they were to move it away from diesel to move it sustainable you've got some additional height as well for that and so that's a program that was developed out over 25 years plus it's been going on continues to go on now and you look at the importance and quality of such change and you so easily can see that you have to have that long-term planning and decision making in the hands of kind of a longer term organization that's not looking at four to five year political terms. And I think that, you know, importantly serves one function for us um, as a country. But I, I certainly feel that we need to get some kind of cross-party uh, organisation moving to some extent. There's thoughts that there's elements of the, of the, of the House of Lords that could do that, but... Um, it would need to be a radically different type of House of Lords than it is at the moment. And I know there's been various reports written 
about how that could be modernized um, into a more effective decision-making uh, piece. But that, that's something I would certainly, certainly welcome. We, um, we'd save ourselves money by not changing our minds and we'd uh, achieve more by, by working on and delivering kind of more certain programs. So, you know, I'm sure we've all heard the criticism from the car industry and the manufacturers about the change from 2030 to 2035. You know, they, they took 2030 seriously. They were, they were gearing up their productions. They were gearing up um, the elements that they needed to bring through and the investments they needed to bring through to achieve 2030. And then really late in the day, you know, a, a government leader says, well, actually, I've changed my mind about that. Just going to add five years on it. Well, they probably didn't need to invest so intensely. They probably didn't need to borrow money quite as expensively. They could have had other options and commercial options they could have taken if they knew it was going to be 2035. It's those kind of things, that I think, if I was in that sector of business, I would find hugely, hugely frustrating um, to see my to see to see my long term decision making and investments and sort of commercial ability just being flipped around. Um, it's it's yeah, it's, it's no it's no way to achieve our longer term strategies and goals. No, absolutely. So some really good examples there. Uh, coincidentally, I'd have loved some double-decker trains in the UK, but again, you know, it would have been a huge challenge, wouldn't it, with our bridges, our existing infrastructure. Um, but a really good example there of long-term planning. And, and like you said, in that case, you know, a 25-year plan that's coming to fruition, um, which is really, really good to see a, a good example of that in place. Um, touching upon that piece that, that you touched upon at the start of that, where you were talking about um, you know, ensuring sort of the expertise and ensuring their input in all of this. There's obviously that debate where if you're taking politicians out of the, the mix entirely, then some might argue that democracy would be compromised if we were to take the key policy decisions out of the hands of elected officials. So I'd be really interested to delve into that more on, on how we keep the politics relevant while still keeping the experts in the room and still ensuring we address and tackle those long-term policy concerns that we have? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's through what Katie mentioned earlier. It's, it's through these cross-party working groups. So, you know, cross-party, they're going to be representatives of the parties that uh, are kind of in in one of the houses, be it the House of Commons or House of Lords, um, that you would have as part of that longer-term planning group. So you would ideally have one for transport. Now, you have transport select committees that kind of review and oversee and discuss where we are with our transport investments and what it is that we're looking to achieve. But you don't have that level which says, OK, we've now all had a discussion, a cross-party discussion, and we've agreed on a 25-year plan, and that's what we're going to go with. Now, I take it that, say, for the delivery of HS1, you know, they're, they're, 
you know, I don't, I don't know the detail of it inside out, even though I, I, I kind of worked on what, um, what the station may or may not be in, uh, in Camden. And, um, and I'm as pleased as anyone to see the quality of the station that got developed at St Pancras compared to the what was known as the box station underneath King's Cross, which was literally a box, uh, is where it was uh, going to go. And it was the Transport Select Committee that said no to that and said it wasn't good enough or, or appropriate enough. But I'm assuming there must have been some like long-term finance and funding agreements that matched the French investment so that, that we didn't have the option of just changing our mind halfway through and leaving, leaving the French with an incomplete line their side and us with an incomplete one our side. So it's whatever, it's whatever the delivery mechanism was of something like that that we need to reach into and into a cross-party organisation. So you're right, it's got, it's got to be democratic and accountable. Um, you know, ultimately you, have, you do need to be able to vote it out. But there's an amount of it that we need to be putting into sort of like, you know, the National Infrastructure Commission, the... Um, the other one that's coming along now that's of interest to us certainly is the Active Travel Commission through the Gear Change Report. I mean, that's really progressive. Um, it's not it's not funded enough yet. It's not prominent enough, but it's been given planning powers, which is pretty impressive. You know, that it's going to be a statutory consultee on, on all major development, and those proposers are going to have to explain how active travel is going to be provided at each and every new development that we come forward with across the country. So that's that's that, that's a good initiative. But you would now want that initiative to go into a long-term plan, to go into some cross-party. What, what are we going to do for 25 years to make this a successful uh, transition now? Gear change, Active Travel Commission, I, I can't see anything in that that would cause a difficulty cross-party. I just, you know, I, I think it's absolutely ripe for taking into such a decision-making organisation and giving that some teeth so that we could then get on with it for 25 years. Um, so that's, that's some of the areas I'd like us to focus on. Thanks so much, Rory. That's that's really powerful. I think the idea of that active travel commission almost brings us right back where we started um, to to your anecdote about the cycling experience improving and sort of tracing that from an individual and, and personal level throughout the past few few years in, in London and throughout your career. Um, obviously, these are things that are so powerful and impactful, even for individual people. But when we think at scale um, about commissions like this and what the power would be for you know major infrastructural decision-making and, and long-term policy-making, I think that's probably a, a great sort of note to begin the new year on, um, because obviously there are many lessons that we have from, from the past few years and, and things that we could possibly be be doing differently um, in practice. We've we've talked about so much today, you know, um, I think this was a really important and, and timely discussion um, on things like policy, cross-party collaboration. Um, obviously, we know that 
transport itself sits very much inside, not outside of the political process. But equally, there are so many things that I guess industry expertise, innovation, um, crazy ideas like like double decker trains um, can can do to sort of disrupt the the status quo as well, uh, because we we know that it's not necessarily working. Um, when when I think about those statistics, we always hear about climate change. You know how transport industry is one of the the biggest contributors to it. Um, obviously, that can feel very maybe overwhelming and daunting, but equally, there's such an incredible opportunity there, right? Because that means that transport can have a massive impact. Um, and so, I just really appreciate you you taking the time to share your reflections and, and learnings with us today. And I think. Um, yeah, that's something that Joe and I can can take on board and, and use to inspire us throughout the, the rest of the week and month as we um, contribute some of this to our, our work at Momentum as well. Thank you. I was just looking across uh, um, a couple of other other pieces of um, data that Nico was, um, uh, was 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 good enough to pull together to support. The, um, the presentation I gave to the city architects forum, and and I and I want to lean into it and bring that through because I think we can all see that for I mean for it's for all of us to be concerned about climate challenge and the difficulties ahead, but I really am concerned about the kind of the mental stress on on youngsters in our in our in our society about what. What does that look like going ahead? And I really think we've got a responsibility to not only achieve those changes, but to talk about, you know, how we can achieve them as well. And some great data that, that Nico shared with me was that he said, we, we, we've had this 17% population growth since 1990. And yet we've managed to keep our transport emissions at the same level. So. It's not brilliant. I'm, I'm not flying a flag here going, that's great. But over that period of time, we've managed to reduce our emissions through transport by about 20%. Over the same period of time, we've got an overall territorial emissions reduction of 42%. So that's across the built environment, all of the other activities. Industry, I think, has probably done some of the most uh, some of the most change. So you've got 42% of reduction over that period of time, 30 years now. We've got to go quicker than that because we've got 10, 15 years and fair enough objectives, some of them stretch to 2050. So, you know, I understand why the messaging is intentionally grim and focused and serious, but I kind of think we should also be sharing information about what it is we have. Now. 42% reduction of all territorial emissions across the UK in a 30-year period. Amazing. You know, and, that's, and that in a way reaches back to my cycling experience. You know, like not only, not only the amount of soot up my nose has, uh, has, has gone now and reduced, you know, the, uh, the colour of my shirt collars uh, that used to just come off black at the end of, uh, at the end of a day's working in central London, you know, they're, they're not filthy like that anymore. And um, we, we, we are making progress and we should really do everything we can to keep youngsters feeling enthused and engaged with that because it's a massively good thing. We cannot all end up just walking around with, a, with, 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 with gloom and depression around us about 
um, about about there being no way forward. We have got ways forward, and we need all of that energy um, and enthusiasm to, to to step forward and to achieve it. Oh, that's brilliant. A really nice message of hope and light at the end of the tunnel there to end things on, Roy. And and not just about getting soot up noses or on shirt collars. <laughs> I'm sorry if I've left a really difficult image for <laughs> the listeners. But my goodness, no, I, I, I definitely uh, welcome that on my cycle rides nowadays. I'll, I'll, I'll take that not happening to me. So yeah, very happy on that end. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and before we end to our listeners I'm just going to add that today's podcast as well as more information on this subject can be found at our lovely Momentum City Momentum City is our fictional city that we've created to showcase all of the elements that we at Momentum believe are needed for our sustainable inclusive and progressive cities of the future if you're interested in giving Momentum City a look it can be found at www.momentum-city.com And as always, we'll be keeping the conversations going on the likes of LinkedIn. So keep an eye out there as well. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you, guys.